Hello and welcome to Series 3, Women on the Move Behind Closed Doors podcast series. I am Donnie Walford, the Founder and Managing Director of Behind Closed Doors. In today's episode, we are speaking with Tamsin Jones. She has had over two decades of board and executive leadership with expertise in strategy and partnerships. Tamsin has contributed to initiatives that build stronger societies and is a regular advisor to businesses, impact investors and government in the development of projects that sustain people and the planet. Tamsin brings a strategic international perspective to current issues at work and in life. She is based in London with frequent trips to Kenya and Australia. Tamsin Jones, this is such a pleasure for us to have you as our Series 3 podcast guest, Women on the Move. We have been so excited about interviewing you over in the UK, so welcome. Thank you so much, Donnie, for having me and also for all the incredible women that you've been pulling together across Australia. It's a really inspiring group and really energising to, to see what's happening. You've had an amazing career from being in politics at the age of 23 to being involved in venture building and female leadership today. So would you mind telling us about your career journey? Absolutely. Well, it started in, in South Australia, in Adelaide. I was asked to do an internship when I was at university uh, with the then opposition leader who was Mike Ran, and was working with him on youth voting behavior and but really he said anything you want to do with me come you know come to the you know the Mitsubishi plant and meet with the executive come to you know it was an incredible experience as a young woman and and at the end of it he said when I'm elected I want you in my office and I was you know 19 I was like, what do I know? And I, it's just this moment of acknowledging all the male champions, I guess, out there in our lives who have been a huge part of it. So women are a huge part of the equation, but, you know, without the men in, in senior roles also taking a very proactive um, stance, both in bringing in young women, but bringing in women into these senior roles, you know, that's been a huge part of my journey. But w- when I worked with Mike, I was working on women, women on, on boards, women, the status of women. I was working on the arts, which was his agenda, bringing it annual fringe, sustainability, the Million Trees Initiative, which turned into many more. You reminded me of a lot of those targets that he he was very much wanting to reach and just talking about women on boards, uh, he had a a target of having 50% of women on boards by a certain time in... In, uh, in in a year in his strategic plan and he not only achieved it, he overachieved it with the help of obviously people in government. It's true, right? And and we sometimes hear people say it's still not possible to have 50% of women on boards even though that happened now 15 years ago, you know. It's a reminder of some of the things that get us stuck that maybe with just a bit more leadership wouldn't have to be, you know, that way. But I think what I learned in politics as a young person and walking into the CEO of the Department of Premier and Cabinet's office or talking about policy agendas, thinking, you know, what do I know? They said to me very early on, here's a stack of all of our policies. You need to know them. The phone's going to ring. People are going to ask you. You're going to need to make fast decisions. We trust your judgment, but don't get it wrong. So when you think about my career, that experience of what could be possible has absolutely lifted my 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 line of sight so many times and 
when I left Australia, um, which was in 2006, it was knowing that I was leaving one of the best jobs I would have ever had for the purpose of developing my context as a leader. I remember talking to a friend in Australia who's a very senior person in business and he was like, why are you moving to South Africa from London? You know, why would you leave Canary Wharf, the Olympic Regeneration, go to... And I said, because they asked me and it felt really resonant to me. And so I was working on HIV prevention with pregnant women. And then from there, I went on to do an MBA at Oxford with a full scholarship. Now, could I have predicted any of these things, Donnie? Absolutely not. But are they meaning that I'm leaving a life full of, you know, what I think is important? And do I think one day I want to come back and bring that type of opportunity or ideas or collaborations into Australia? Absolutely, yes. You did take risks, though. Uh, as you said, you left a perfectly well-paid job um, with, with maybe a career in politics or further on in government, uh, but you took a risk in, in leaving. Um, and, and a lot of women generally, when they take risks, they're very calculated risks. Was this you had a nothing-to-lose, everything-to-gain story of risk? I guess risk is a very personal thing, right? You've got in your mind as a strategic business leader, you're thinking bottom line, long term, how is it all going to pan out? And I think that is a calculation. It's not always one that a young young person is the best at doing versus someone who's lived the experiences. So I guess my calculation of risk was if I was to go into politics and sit like, you know, Kate has done in Canberra and do all these amazing things, could I sit with my full integrity and do I have a vision for this or is it a job? Because I don't think public office is a job, you know, I think it's a commitment to change and I feel at that moment very strongly that I needed to learn a bit more about the world and about myself the risk of not of going into a position without that and being pulled along for the ride. Tams and I, I'm going to tell you that every decade you feel like you've just started, and that and that's the wonderful thing to look forward to. I think so. I think so. With all the experience you have. So you've known you're you're actually known as a future builder at the intersection of transformative leadership and inclusive innovation. So tell us a little bit about what transformative leadership and inclusive innovation mean and why you feel they're important. If we look at the like historic journey of leadership, we have transactional leadership, which sounds really bad, but actually it's quite functional and helpful. And it did really well for the world when we were in a world that was at this exponential growth and all of that when we're doing manufacturing or, you know, it was much simpler. So I would say to you, Donnie, can you do this? And you would say, Yes, and I'd say, okay, cool. I'll give you five bucks or whatever the you know the, whatever the thing is, and that's a really tra- transactional thing. Now we now we the world is changing every single moment of every single day. So I could ask you to do something, and I might not want you to do that in five minutes. I might want you to do something else. So actually, what you want is to be able to lead in a way that is allowing the people around you to continue to grow and continue to respond and react to the circumstances around them. So it's more of a coaching mindset, a learning mindset, setting an agenda, trust, you know, as a key part of how we lead. And, yes. um, and so it's a, a method of how you lead, but it's also what they call vertical development. So how are you changing as an individual? Can you hear stories that aren't just your own story and see that there are many possible truths? You know, are you good at asking great questions or do you feel like you have to have the answer? 
Because transactional leaders feel like they have to the answer. Transformational leaders would say, I've got the question. It's taken me a while, but I've got the right question. And now everybody, let's get around this. And this is where the inclusive part comes in. Sometimes we think of knowledge as something that we got from a university degree or a book, but actually knowledge is your experience of something too. Yes. We need to get really good at identifying the individual's development when we're recruiting for people in decision-making roles. Can you hold many truths? Do you like questions? Like we, when we were doing board recruitment, we'd say we need someone that doesn't have to have the answer or they should be in the executive. Like what are they doing on a board if that's what they, what they need to feel okay about their life? You know, they really, you know, that's part of their personality. So you can actually recruit for people that are really comfortable with not knowing the answers and really comfortable with listening and really comfortable with convening that also have the technical skills. So I don't think it's an either or, but there is a piece of this that is not just the skills, it's, it's the person. And I think to create this more kind of conscious shift to new creative ways of doing things in companies, organizations, boards, nonprofits, you know, there is going to be a transition. And I think some companies are already doing it. Others aren't. I think you can look at like the Hampton Alexander review on boards in the UK and some of the things that were said, like you feel like they came from the 1950s. But I know bubbling underneath that there is this energy of women and men but a lot of women saying I want to bring these different traits these more feminine traits into these spaces and create these kind of shifts so it's actually it's it's actually more important that the men are saying that not just the women saying that isn't it well I tell you I do a lot of work with women and a lot of my male friends like I want to do that work I want to have that experience and I don't think it's a masculine, a male-female thing. But what I've, I've learned from reading a lot about this and my you know, research practitioner experience of running businesses with women um, is that there are traits um, that we see as feminine. And there's actually a book called Athena, which is brilliant. It's surveyed about 100,000 people around the world to say, culturally, are there things that you think of in leaders that are more feminine and more masculine? And there is, and they're the same all over the world. And, and those traits are things like collaboration, long-term kind of custodial thinking about the whole system rather than the, the, the one kind of decision that's being made now, et cetera. And you can look at someone like Jacinta Ardern, who is different um, yes. because she has this caring approach and, and she doesn't see it as weak and, Interestingly, there's great research on the, what they call the double bind for women. When women are caring in an organization, they're seen as very nice but not as good leader. And when men do it, they're seen as like the sort of person you want to have a beer with, you know. And when women are really transactional and direct, they're seen as being great leaders but they're, you do not want to be with that person. And th- there's case studies that have been done on this in business school. It, yes. And I think, I think it's changing. I think it's changing. But... People like Jacinta are really bucking the trend and you're like, actually that and all the other women leaders, many of the political leaders during COVID created the best transitions of any government because they led without thinking that caring somehow is weakness. So speaking of leadership and leadership styles, I know you've done some interesting work in the feminine versus masculine leadership. So do you feel a leader of the future can be masculine, feminine, or do you think this is now you're already seeing it from, as you say, your practical research? It's already happening. So an organisation in Melbourne that I love called Small Giants, about 10 years ago, and they told me that they had a head of yin and a head of yang 
in their organization, which is the head of kind of the more masculine and the head of the feminine. So that in every conversation, there could be a piece of it that is direct. What are we going to do? What are the measurable things? And then a piece of the conversation that was, how is everyone feeling? Is this working for the group? And the reason why the feminine sometimes feels a little bit fluffy, or maybe it's, is it really worth it? Is because we also haven't valued the body, right? Our body, whereas our body is an encyclopedia of all of our experiences. Like if you ask a trader how they make decisions, they're like intuitive. They can yes. tell you, right? When I've asked, um, I've hosted these amazing roundtables with women in London and asked them if they use these traits to make decisions. And one of the people that very clearly said, yes, we definitely do this, was someone in the military who was working on decisions live in a conflict zone. She said, how else do I make decisions then intuitively? Does this feel right? Do we see that this is probably what's happening? But yet somehow we see them as weak. And so by bringing in this idea of the masculine and the feminine into the way we operate, we can create space and value for both of those things. And I can see uh, uh, the influences around board tables uh, as well that w w with with more women now on not only just the ASX boards but in, in leadership roles and executive roles um, and, and on lots of different uh, private sector boards, you're seeing a, a, an uplift in company performance. So there's there's that... There's that side of it, but I I think back to the, the the first statement you made about having male supporters. If you had male supporters in your career, uh, in the in in as much as sponsoring you internally in an organisation as well as externally, it's so important. It, it it's very it's a fundamental yeah, and I think a part of the the business case is um is this performance piece you've talked about. You know the the IFC, which is an international finance corporation, they did a piece of research looking historically at their portfolio, and seeing what the, the performance shift difference was if there was thirty percent of women in a private equity fund or in a business or on a board, and they were twenty percent higher in their IRR, and higher sales price. It was very clear. And what isn't clear is, is it the woman or is it the organization that can embrace difference? And I think those two things are, are deeply intertwined, so they don't have to be. I was going to say it's integrated. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It just, it just means they're open to, to more diversity and inclusion and not just female gender either. Yes. And how are boards representing your customers. So I think there's a lot of evidence out there that often isn't talked about. And I think then the next step is how do we make these spaces a space where people can express the big questions and to keep it as transformative as we can, given the world that we're living in. And that is about seeing that everybody's different and has very unique and interesting perspectives. And if we don't, we're not open to that, then we're also not open to a different kind of future. And that's success, right? For for companies, for the for the globe. So yeah. So Tamsin, in, in conclusion, would you please share your top tips for women who want to develop their leadership skills or be a more effective leader? Absolutely. So number one thing, and I, I read the Harvard Leadership Theory textbook cover to cover saying, what are they saying about women? And um, what was really interesting, I did this because they weren't saying very much, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I think that what we know is that when we start out our career, we start by mimicking. You know, even as a child, you mimic your big brother, your big sister, your whatever. You mimic, you, 
you, you start with this idea of competency. I'm competent at this. They can do that. I can do that. They can do that. I can do that. And with women, because maybe we don't have as many role models, I don't know. We don't come out of that as quickly as men. So when you come out of a competency idea of I've got to be as good, as good or better, you move into a learning mindset where you go, actually, I know enough now. And so my mindset shifts from having to compete or how do I use every opportunity as a learning opportunity? So failure becomes like a really beautiful and important part of it. Hard, yes, but like crucial. And this shift, so I think... What I would say from, for women is how can you find spaces to shift out of a sense that I have to be as good into a space of I am absolutely competent enough and now I'm here to learn and that is a, that is a shift from transactional to transformational. It's very stressful to be a leader that's trying to be competent at everything all the time as a mindset and if you're a leader that wants to learn and be curious it can actually be a joyful experience leading. And hence hence to your point earlier, Tamsin, about learn to ask really good questions. It is it is the skill of the next century. It is so important and it really changed how effective I was as a board director when I learned to ask good questions. And then you also don't you can sit in a room and be like you're not sitting there quietly saying I don't want to say anything because I don't know the answer. You say, what is the question that I am not able to answer? And maybe if I ask that question to this room, we might all come to an answer. And maybe that's the most transformative thing we can do. And that's an example of a learning mindset that I think is so important. Any other tips for for women uh, who want to be more effective leaders? I think that you should embrace your own style. What I've been doing over the last uh, couple of years, particularly with COVID, is learning about how what we call somatic leadership, so how the body interacts with leadership. And actually, quite often, by moving, by shifting, by doing things physically differently, by sensing into things, we can come up with really great insights. And we know now that our body often tells our brain what to do. So how we stand, how we sit, how we breathe, how we are in a space is really fundamental and transformative. So I guess I would encourage you to see yourself as a whole system and not just a brain on a stick. You know, I, I went through a, I went through a burnout from my physical body. I'm like, you're you're not tired, you're not this, you're not that. And now I listen beyond tired. I say when. When you said that, Donnie, about the question, like my whole body became alive. I was like, that is such a great point. And so I'm like, I'm going to double down that because it, it feels right to me. And we, it feels right because we know. Like in our brain, we can draw on you know, maybe a little bit of information that we've learned over our life. In our body, we draw on all of it all the time. And so when you feel something, an intuitive thing, it doesn't feel right, it does feel right, take a moment to just consider why rather than say, why is my body bugging me right now or whatever it is? Because we know now that the body is telling the brain a lot. In fact, most of what happens, the body is telling the brain. And there's some incredible research on this. And I'm, I'm happy to share a couple of books if people are interested. So do you want to share those books before we close, Tamsin? Yeah. So The Body Keeps the Score is a really good one by Bessel van der Kolk. It's, trans, it's a transformative book for me and for many people I know. And then there's another book, which is When the Body Says No, which is really around creating boundaries for yourself that are in line with what you want to achieve in your life and listening to your body when your body's saying, actually, this is not working for you. And it can not just lead to more effectiveness in business, it can lead to infinitely better health for you. And women, we know we need boundaries. We know we need to create these structures that allow us to deliver what we want, but also to take care of ourselves. Samson, you're amazing and I can't wait to see you in Australia and I hope it's sooner than later. So, Tamsin, once again, thank you so much for being such a wonderful podcast guest, Women on the Move. 
Thanks, Donnie. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Women on the Move podcast brought to you by Behind Closed Doors. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. To find out more about leadership and professional development for you, visit BehindCloseDoors.com where you can find the full range of memberships and coaching and mentoring options available. This is a Narrative Network podcast.